0: Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to the Daily Sun Up. The Daily Sun Up Podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosuncom ethics. It's Friday, February 2nd. Today, we'll be taking a look at the Western literary landscape as sunwriter Kevin Simpson chats with the author of a new book that delves deep into the American West and the myths that fuel political and social division. Before we begin, the Colorado Sun invites you to meet the politics team at an unaffiliated networking event held at the Denver Press Club. The event is sponsored by Aponte and Busam Public Affairs Consultants. There will be a cash bar. It's free to join, and you'll have time to chat with staff and readers. Join us on February 29th, and RSVP today by visiting coloradosun.com/events. Now let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On this day in 1848, the U.S. gained claim to modern Colorado through the Treaty of Guadalupe-Hidalgo, ending the Mexican-American War. President Polk had declared war on Mexico in 1846 after failing to purchase California. Colonel Stephen Kearney's troops took Santa Fe without conflict and proceeded to California while Bent's Fort in Colorado played a minor role. Although the treaty shifted Colorado's claim from Mexico to the U.S., local American Indians maintained control. The war negatively impacted Bent St. Vrain and Company, a dominant trading firm, due to trade disruptions and unpaid federal debts. Charles Bent, appointed New Mexico governor by Kearney, was killed in a Teos uprising in 1847. Before we continue, a special thank you to all our Colorado Sun members listening. It's thanks to you that the Sun continues to bring trustworthy, independent journalism to readers and listeners across our state. If you're not yet a member and want to join us, visit coloradosun.com join to sign up. While you're there, check out our member e-newsletters like Colorado Sunday, The Temperature, and more. Together, we'll keep Colorado informed in 2024. Next, our feature story.
1: Happy Friday, Colorado. Here at The Sun, uh, part of our mission is to help readers understand the vast, diverse very nuanced region that we call home. And we've got a guest today who has spent considerable time researching and writing a book that can help us tackle some important aspects of that puzzle. The name of the book is True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America. And welcome to author Betsy Gaines Quamet. How are you, Betsy?
2: I'm great, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, before we get started, I want to let listeners know that we'll have just an amazing excerpt from the book in this week's Sunlit feature, starting Sunday, plus an extended interview with you as well. And we want to dive into True West, but for some context, tell us a little about your previous book, uh, American Zion, and why you were looking to create with this latest work sort of a, a companion to that book.
2: Yes, thank you. My book, American Zion, uh, is it was a long time in the making. It comes out of my background in conservation. I'm very, very interested in public land protection, and I began to be curious about different ways of viewing public lands. I I, I worked with religious groups for years on religious prisms or perspectives on lands and cultural, different cultural ways of seeing. And I began to realize that there were cultural ways of seeing public lands that were very much a part of the Sagebrush Rebellion, which was in a period of time and and in some ways very much ongoing, that uh, that public land did not belong to the government. There was this kind of proprietary take. Ranchers who had uh, publicly land leases, were protesting. This was a big state's rights um, issue over federal regulations and and uh, protests over what they saw as overreach. And I looked at particularly uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, uh, early church theology, and how that played into the Bundy family and the Bundy family's position on public land. And their first standoff was in 2014. And they were protesting the government uh, confiscating their cows that had been in trespass for 20 years. They hadn't paid grazing fees because they felt like the government didn't own the I mean, or, or rather they, they felt like the government couldn't have federal land. And so this was an armed standoff. And I went and visited the family in 2015, which was the year between the armed standoff in Nevada over confiscated cows and the takeover of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, which the sons of and Bundy, who was the rancher in Nevada, uh, went to Malheur in Oregon and had an armed takeover there. And so my dissertation, this this all of a sudden was part of my, I was working on my PhD, and this became part of my dissertation. And then American Zion is a version of my dissertation. And I realized that so many of these issues were ongoing. And when I thought about my next book, I thought, I am going to look at the mythologies that are informing this family I am watching Ammon Bundy, who was the son of Cliven, who was involved in the Oregon takeover, pivot from public lands to medical freedom. He made COVID his next malheur. And so this book really was about addressing these foundational myths that motivate extremists, that motivate the militia, and that really were pivotal to the January 6th insurrection. So this book really is about it is a companion piece, but it's about all the myths that the that the West has in, informing or people are are think about when they think of the West. But how those myths are really foundational to what it actually means to be an American. For you know, a very much for worse, maybe sometimes for better. But it's it's I looked at what happens if you don't understand the myths and how they can become toxic.
1: Right. And the, the myths you talk about with regard to the West, I mean, these are, these are some of the most ingrained in American culture, aren't they? I mean, ho- Hollywood has seized upon them for generations of mainstream entertainment. I, the other day I turned on the TV and I'm watching the reruns of The Lone Ranger. Uh, so it continues.
2: Uh, well, and in Yellowstone, which is the latest sort of iteration.
1: Absolutely. Well, well, what are some of the most elemental myths and how do they figure into this polarization of society that you explore so deeply?
2: Yeah, it was very interesting to look at what happened during COVID to Western states. I'm up in Montana and Colorado experienced some of the same pressures that we did with people coming to our state uh, misinformed and, and sort of attached to mythologies. Some of the things that, that I talked about in the book, and, and this actually happened in Crested Butte, is that there was this idea that the west is hale and hearty that that you can go out to the mountains and you're somehow going to be in a healthier landscape and so all these people were coming into our western towns as as a place of refuge from covid and it was overwhelming small western clinics and and I think in particular Crested Butte tried to to push back and and prevent people from coming into town and that caused quite a big Fight actually with Texas. So, so that, and I write a little bit about that. that um, that's something that Nick Bowen um, wrote a beautiful piece about in the High Country News, and he's in Gunnison. And so, um, I, I, but that kind of thing happened be, based on this, this mythology that the West is a healthier place than, than other places that you can be out in the mountains. Uh, that there was the idea of wilderness, that this myth that you could go to untrammeled places. Not only are they not untrammeled, they've been landscapes that indigenous people have lived on forever. But when you go to untrammeled places and everybody's going to this idea of getting away to untrammeled places, all of a sudden things become quite trammeled. It was we had we had an explosive amount of tourists uh, coming to our states. Uh, We had issues of of housing crises or crises. Um, inequity, pressuring our communities because the West became this this place where people wanted to move now that they could work remotely. And um, and so you also in in all of this have layers of, you know, endless resources. I mean, this goes back to manifest destiny, this idea that that we could go to this place and, and the rain follows the plow was the myth. Well, here we are in the midst of um, the Colorado watershed and one of the longest running droughts that we've ever experienced. So this, this idea of endless resources is absolutely, it's a very dangerous myth. And we're also on the forefront of climate change right now in the West. We have the fires, we have the droughts, um, we have the flooding. And, um, and so when people rush here because they think it's a, a you know, sort of um, mythological, you know, wide open spaces and opportunities and endless resources. Well, it's really pressuring Western communities.
1: So how did you approach your research for True West? I know you, you talk to such a wide variety of people. Where do you even start to zero in on the subjects who can best Tell this story.
2: Yeah, I did it by i I started just talking to friends who would introduce me to friends who would introduce me to friends and friends and friends, and I I really was able to meet a, I mean I interviewed over a hundred people I, and it's probably more than that. I I I just found myself engaged in conversation, um, and I, I I was talking about issues. That all of us were experiencing, I, I, you know, polarization and pandemic. We were all in the middle of it, and no matter where our politics were, we were going through this together. And yet, we'd been so siloed, and we'd been sheltering in place. And I found that people were absolutely thrilled to to be talking, even to people who they didn't agree with. I mean, I made it abundantly clear that that I'm. A progressive and I talked to a number of um very very uh strong conservatives um and uh, and I also you know I I I felt like especially in communities that I I worked in or, or operated in in uh in some of these places called the American Redoubt the, this campaign where there was a there was a people were being encouraged to move to the West in order to create like-minded communities. And a lot of Christian nationalists were flooding into Western Montana and the Idaho Panhandle. And I, I was talking to people in those communities who were strong Republican conservatives that were really working to fight extremism. And it was interesting to me to... Be able to see the coalitions that were being built that, you know, we we have been told over and over again that we're so polarized and we certainly are. But I also felt like a lot of that was being foisted on us by politicians and by right wing media and by manipulative social media and clip bait um, that some of this hate and distrust was being monetized and it was helping people become more powerful or, or to stay in their political positions. And I really saw these people being back in relationship with one another after being kind of cooped up, uh, and only getting versions of each other over social media. So it was actually really, um, I, I ended the book feeling more hopeful than I did before I started it.
1: And I want to get to more of that in in a second, but you, as you mentioned, the, the pandemic. Um, in talking with a lot of different authors uh, who were writing at that time, and the pandemic, uh, you know, played a role in, in their works, and it, it certainly did in your book as well. as uh, you know, an impetus for the polarization. But you also mentioned it was just great finally to get out after oh, the, the pandemic. So th- that must have influenced the way you approached this. Made you. <laughs> A, a little more ready to uh, take on the challenge.
2: It really did. I mean, I, I, you know, after being cooped up, it it was wonderful to get out and talk to people. Uh, and it was wonderful to get out to talk to people in rural communities. And I think that, you know, I live in Bozeman and it is, you know, now the place that everybody's, I mean, it, basically the joke is Bozeman, you know, 20 miles from Montana or, you know, this whole idea that that we're really out of touch. Um, I've lived in Montana for 31 years. And before that I lived in Colorado and um, I went to college in Colorado and I lived in Telluride for a while. And I have always taken enormous interest in how varied the you know, sort of politics were in, in these areas. and um, And it was... It was really interesting for me to get out and talk to people in communities that are very different than than Bozeman and what we're going through, communities that don't have these vibrant economies that that are traditional sort of communities of, of um, extractive, not to say that, you know, some of the stuff that's happening here is extractive in different ways, but the logging, mining and, and ranching communities and to, to be able to have conversations that were real. Um, And I, you know, I had a guy say that if he'd never met me, he would have been afraid of me. And I thought that was really not only revelatory, but really gratifying and and really kind of hit home to me that we need to be doing more of this. And I'm really trying to scale uh, the work that that was done in this book. So, so that there are more opportunities for people in different communities to be in conversation with each other and not getting versions of each other from, say, Laura, Bo- Lauren Boebert or L- Laura Boebert, Lauren Boebert.
1: <laughs> it's Lauren.
2: <laughs> and Lauren. And, uh, and you know, and in, in my state, Matt Rosendale. I mean, you know, there, there's people who really try to vilify our neighbors. And and so, um, you know, whether it's one politician or another, whoever, uh, on whichever side of the aisle, it's really important for us to be in conversation with our neighbors. And it was and it was really a, a wonderful exercise for me.
1: You talk about, gosh, some of the, the conversations that you had. Um, I want to touch on one particular myth, because it's the one featured in the excerpt we're running uh, in Sunlit this weekend, and that's about wolves. Uh, they're Particularly topical now, of course, because of the, the recent release in Colorado. But this is going on; has been going on for a while in, in other states. Uh, and much of your excerpt revolves around one particular ranch, but it touches on some very nuanced and visceral feelings uh, about both the wolves and the livestock they can threaten. Uh, and you know, some of the stories that the the people told you were just you know gut wrenching uh, about. Dealing with this issue, but give us a bit of the backstory on your research into this particular very hot button topic.
2: Right, I uh, I talked to Roger Lang, who is or has been a um, predator friendly rancher, and he had a ranch on the border of Yellowstone and allowed wolves. I mean, they they made it a, a one of their specific goals to to live with wolves and to run cows in wolf country. And so his ranch was wolf habitat. I mean, wolves don't differentiate between public land or public land allotments uh, and uh, private land. They, they, they will go where they go. And, um, you know, you, you want them eating elk. And I know that's controversial, too, because the hunters will say, oh, gosh, they're going to decimate elk herds. Uh, you don't want them eating cows. And it's easier for a wolf to eat a cow. Uh, it's it just they burn less calories. So living as a rancher in wolf country is hard. And um, and yet, I mean, I'm somebody who I'm I come from conservation. I absolutely love wolves, I love wolves in my state. um, And I feel like our governor has been really awful about um, wolves and wolf habitat and wolf protection. Um, I also know that it's hard to have a ranch in wolf country. And I I know that wolves are, they're not perfect. Um, They're wild animals and they do eat things that are domestic. Um, That said... I do think there are ways to work with wolves and to um, work with ranchers to help them live in areas that that are wolf habitat. Um, I also know it is extremely emotional. I, I the I focus on Roger Lang; he's the owner of the ranch, but I also talk about Bryce, who was um, a ranch hand, and he also adored wolves, but he cared for these cows. I mean, he he really cared for the cows and they would spend all summer with the cows uh on horseback and were really trying they were range riding. They were they were trying to protect the herds from from predators cuz this is grizzly country too. And um he saw two of his cows um get predated. I mean and and they didn't I'm sorry, they they weren't killed immediately. One of them, there there were some that were killed, but the one I talk of, or two I talk about in particular in this excerpt that you're going to be carrying, um, the wolves ripped their underbellies and um, and he had to watch these cows in terrible pain walk back to the the barn in order for an inspector to look at them to verify that they'd been attacked by wolves and how excruciating it was for him um, to both care about wolves and care about cows. And, um, and I, I, that to me, um, I felt like that chapter really helped me understand how difficult it is because I think conservationists um, have sort of assumed like, you know, wolves belong there, ranchers just have to adjust. And, and I agree that, that, you know, in order to have a wild place, uh, we need to have predators if if we're going to have um you know have these areas be cattle grazing allotments, but it is not easy and and it really does take a lot of adjusting.
1: So I'm wondering, based on on what you learned from these very detailed conversations you had with folks who've been dealing with wolf reintroduction, what what advice can you offer Colorado? If anything, are there lessons that have been learned already that uh, might apply? To Colorado
2: you know I've been reading uh, quite a bit about Colorado reintroduction and I think that the best thing that and this is easier said than done I completely get this uh, because they're these wolves are now out there and um, I, I really feel like the best thing that the state can do is work really closely with the ranchers. And to to really be in relationship with the, them because it is going to be difficult. And I, when I covered Roger, Roger's quite wealthy, and so he could do this and take losses because one of the things wolves do is it, 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 they make the cows jittery and and, um, and therefore they don't put on the kind of weight they should be doing or, or could be doing, I should say. And you know, I thought, well, maybe it's just something that wealthy, Kind of hobby ranchers can do, but I've since heard about ranchers that are just committed to this idea of a wild landscape, and it's not easy, but it can be done. There are there are ways that that um, wolves can can thrive in areas that are ranching um, landscapes, or you know these are wild landscapes next to agricultural landscapes. Um, it takes more time. Uh, it takes a commitment to it. Uh, there are banners that you can attach to fencing so that it it makes wolves nervous. Um, There are, you can use dogs, you can um, use range riders. And um, it's just, I mean, the truth is, is that ranching has become more of a endeavor where people aren't as hands-on as they used to be. And if you're going to be a place that has wolves, if you're going to be ranching in a place that has wolves, there are, it's going to take more work.
1: So uh, I'm wondering, as we're heading into what promises to be a a bruising and acrimonious election year, uh, after honing your interpersonal skills to connect with all these people on all sides of some very difficult issues, did you come away confident that we in the West can sort of weather this storm or did the experience leave you less optimistic about what lies ahead?
2: Oh my gosh. Okay. So I have two answers kind of to that. I'm really concerned about national politics. I, I just feel like it gets ever more polarized and, um, and theatrical. It's just performative. I, we're not making progress with, politicians are not carrying out the will of the people that they're, they're wearing gridlock. And and it's I mean, I see what's happening with this border issue. It, it's it, it just it's almost like, well, it's not almost like I, I really do think one party does not want to have the border issue solved because I think it's really advantageous um, as a campaign issue for them. And so I that makes me worried. I have enormous faith in communities. I, I have seen communities really come together and you know fight extremists and and so I'm thinking in particular there, there's a there's a very conservative community in the Idaho Panhandle um, that is Idaho being one of the most conservative states in the country And extremists targeted them thinking that they could get away with, taking over the school board and completely defunding the school. And there was an election and two, two very, very arch conservative people, um, right-wing act, um, uh, activists got onto the board by just a handful of votes, like five or six votes. And the community demanded a recount because these candidates wanted to strip the school of funding. They, they appointed a superintendent that had zero experience And he also wanted to completely gut the school. And they had a recount and they got their school board back. And again, this is in an incredibly conservative community, but they loved their school. Now, the next election, those extremists got right back on because the community just kind of thought, Whoo, okay, we did it. And and that's the, the it's gonna take vigilance. And but other places in Idaho where, again, Idaho is a place where these operatives have really targeted because they want to create like-minded Christian nationalist communities and they feel like they can get away with it in Idaho. And a lot of people are moving there, but there are conservatives in that state who are fighting against these extremists and they are winning. And it's called Take Back Idaho. It's a, it's a pretty exciting campaign. I've been able to meet a number of the people involved in it and, and they're, they're really, um, they're really making strides, but it is a fight. And and I, you know, I look at what's happened in Bozeman. I, I think our community is is really trying to address um, these issues and really trying to come together. And I'm saying these issues meaning housing and equity. We have a growing houseless population, and you know the community is really coming together to to deal with that. So I'm I'm seeing on community levels that, that um, people are coming together, and I, I do have hope in that.
1: Well, certainly a book for our times that you've come out with. Uh, we've been talking with Betsy Gaines-Quammen, whose book True West, Myths and Mending on the Far Side of America is available at fine bookstores everywhere. And again, you can sample a taste of it in this weekend's Sunlet. Thanks for joining us, Betsy.
2: Thank you, Kevin, for having me. This has been great.
0: You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. A bill that would quadruple property taxes for many Colorado vacation homes is set for what promises to be a stormy public hearing. Hundreds of property owners and small business owners, many from mountain towns, are planned to visit the state capitol in Denver next week to voice opposition to Senate Bill 33. The measure would hike property taxes for 24,100 short-term rental homes in Colorado. Many vacation homes would be hit with a 27.9% property tax rate compared with the current rate of 6.7%. Short-term rentals are frequently blamed for reducing the number of rental homes available amid a statewide housing crisis. Lauren Boebert started the year with more campaign cash than her Republican primary opponents in Colorado's 4th Congressional District. That advantage comes even as Bobert's fundraising dipped in the last three quarters of 2023, including after she was ejected from a performance of Beetlejuice at a Denver theater. The fundraising reports are the first since Republican U.S. Representative Ken Buck announced in November he wouldn't seek a sixth term in the 4th District. That led Bobert to drop plans for reelection in the 3rd District, where she faced a tough battle and joined the Republicans running to succeed Buck in the GOP stronghold. Colorado oil and gas regulators have rejected two proposed drilling projects over concerns they could affect the health and safety of suburban residents and wildlife. The State Energy and Carbon Management Commission rejected a proposal for 16 wells in critical winter habitat for Pronghorn in northeastern Weld County. They also quashed a plan for 18 wells in a heavily populated area of Broomfield and Erie. Extraction Oil and Gas proposed drilling 18 wells using approvals issued in 2017. That was before the 2019 passage of a law that prioritizes public health, safety, welfare, the environment, and wildlife when issuing permits. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now a quick message from our team. This is Michael Booth.
1: And this is John Ingold. We cover health and climate here at the Colorado Sun. Every week, John and I work together to send out a newsletter to our premium members called The Temperature. In this newsletter, we share our latest reporting about health and climate and how they intersect issues like forever chemicals, healthcare's rising costs, and the lingering effects of the pandemic. The Temperature is one of our weekly newsletters available to members at the premium level. To sign up, head to coloradosun.com join. Not only will you be able to sign up for the temperature and our other premium newsletters, but you'll be supporting the Colorado Sun as a member, and thanks for doing that.